0: The closest I've ever been to combat has been paintball, which I did with the youth group on a trip we took to Maryland over the summer. At the paintball park, the battlefields, which are about the size of a football field, are set up so that each team starts at one end. But one team is on the defensive, and at their end there is some kind of makeshift fortress or home base that they defend. And then the offensive team has to try to advance from their end and try to capture the fortress or the base. And one of the things that I quickly learned, besides the fact that paintballs really hurt when they hit you, is that it is much easier to defend than it is to attack. Because the defenders can station themselves behind good cover at their fortress or base and simply fire away. The offensive team has to advance out in the open. And there are little barriers and cover points that are made out of logs and old tires that they can duck behind as they come down the field. But each time they move forward, they do have to spend some time out in the open and exposed to enemy fire. So what I realized is that a good offensive team has to work in phases. Part of the team advances towards the next set of cover, while the rest of their team covers them by firing away at the defensive players, trying to keep them pinned down in their fortress. Otherwise, it's just too easy for the defensive team to pick them off. I later read that the military teaches the infantry essentially the same tactics for small groups. Half the group moves forward while the other half covers. Then the rear half comes up and the forward team covers for them. And what's interesting is that even with these tactics, the military recognizes that it is unwise for the moving part of the team to advance more than about five meters while under enemy fire. Even with your unit laying down cover fire, a soldier can't be af- can't afford to be out in the open for more than about a few seconds. Now, that's the extent of my combat shooting experience. But I thought it was interesting that there is a similar philosophy in judo, which I used to practice, and probably a lot of other martial arts have a similar idea as well, which is that it is almost always easier to counterattack than to attack. In judo, for example, if one player wants to to throw the other, he's got to make a strong movement towards his opponent from an arm's length distance. But in doing so, he provides his opponent with the best opportunity to counter throw him. Because the initial movement towards the opponent is always a long movement that takes more time and compromises one's balance. Whereas the counter can be a short movement, that takes advantage of the fact that the opponent has committed himself to moving in a certain direction. Truth be told, the same principle applies also in intellectual debate, whether that's legal or political or theological. The first person who tries to make a big claim in an argument, for example, putting forth a broad conceptual idea that requires a complex set of inferences or supporting evidence, will always expose themselves to being undermined because it's always possible to attack a broad or complex claim at many points, making it harder to defend. In some ways, this has been the experience of those who would defend traditional marriage against recent assaults. The Church's arguments in favor of marriage are always pinned to a very broad and conceptual understanding of the way marriage functions in society. Opponents, on the other hand, had a short, sharp set of attacks on that position based on seemingly compact ideas, like love and freedom and equality and tolerance. And so the way to win a debate, if your goal is simply to win, is to keep your own arguments small and compact and easily understandable. Don't expose yourself to enemy counter-arguments by overextending your line of reasoning. So that's your worldly wisdom for this week. But whatever merits there are to conducting yourself this way in paintball or in judo or in intellectual debate, it's not the way of the spiritual life. It's not the path to holiness. Hunkering down and playing it safe are not the way to heaven. The Gospel reading today gives us the story of Bartimaeus, a blind man who sought healing from Jesus. We have to keep in mind that a blind man in Jesus' day was, at best, an object of pity. More often, he was an object of scorn, because there was a tendency in Judaism at that time to see that those, or to view those who had physical handicaps, as suffering for some sin that they had committed, or at least perhaps for a sin that their parents had committed before them. So the disabled held a lower place in the social hierarchy. They could be objects of charity, yes, as most blind people would beg for a living. So other people weren't totally indifferent to them. But at the same time, they weren't really invited into polite company. They weren't seen as social equals. So when Bartimaeus calls out for Jesus, he's breaking a social protocol. A blind person wouldn't dare approach a rabbi or a priest or an official or a wealthy person. If someone important passed by the blind person might hold out their cup or their hand, hoping to get some alms. But you didn't bother an important person with questions or demands as they went about their business. That's why the crowd tried to silence him. To reach out to Jesus, we, in a sense, have to expose ourselves. To become holier, to become true followers of Christ, we will have to expose ourselves to some enemy fire, go outside of our comfort zones. One will receive some fire from other people. They might call someone who is a devout Christian a religious fanatic or a moral prude. Some won't understand why a Christian has moral objections to things that they consider perfectly acceptable. But the struggle is also internal. To seek out Christ is to confront our own sinfulness and weaknesses. Bartimaeus' blindness is a metaphor for all of us. To seek after Christ is to say, Jesus, take away this blindness in my life, whatever it is. Whatever sin, whatever failing I have, please help me to recognize it so that I can see and so that I can remove it. But the good thing that we know is that God is not the one who is sniping at us when we pick our heads up. Other people, as I said, sometimes yes. But Bartimaeus calls Jesus son of David recalling the great King David, who was the most wise and just ruler of all of Israel. And when Jesus invites him, Bartimaeus has such confidence in what the Lord will do for him that he throws off his only worldly security, his cloak, so that he can run after Jesus. As people, most of us who are already baptized followers of Christ, I think we experience this internal sense of exposure most profoundly in the sacraments of confession. When we bring our sins and failings before the Lord, we suffer the shame of examining our consciences so that we can recount our sins. We fear, I hope wrongly, but oftentimes we do fear the human judgment of the priest. But we know that when we make a good confession, we are like Bartimaeus, who has received his sight and can go on his way in peace. To advance in holiness is only possible when we are willing to bear our souls to God, to admit that we need God and thus to allow his grace to work in our lives, to admit our own blindness, to name our sins, to call out to God in our lives and to live by his law and not concern ourselves with the judgment of others. But we can do this because we know that Jesus is not concerned with how exposed we are. He's not taking advantage of that. We know that he will heal us, and ultimately it is by Christ that we will be saved.